welcome to Animal Cafe, where you'll hear weekly interviews with experts and enthusiasts working to better the lives of animals, and a monthly segment reviewing fun, fabulous, and useful products for your pets. Check our website, animalcafe.co, for more. This is Hillary Lane, a contributor to Animal Cafe, reporting on animal welfare of all species. Today we have Dr. Stephen Kress, Vice President for Bird Conservation for the National Audubon Society. An expert in seabird conservation, Dr. Kress is also known as the Puffin Man because of his extraordinary success leading Audubon's Project Puffin in Maine. Begun in 1973, Project Puffin is a model around the world for rebuilding colonies of seabirds. In addition, Dr. Kress is an associate at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, where he developed and teaches a popular Springfield ornithology course. Steve, welcome. Hi, Hillary. Happy yes. to be with you today. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. Um, but before we get into Puffin specifically, uh, would you be able to talk briefly about the plight of birds globally regarding their habitat loss, um, what's being done to remediate this, and what kind of birds are most endangered and which are doing the best? Worldwide, uh, bird populations are under uh, lots of different kinds of pressures, all of which have can be traced back to actions that humans are doing to the planet. Mm-hmm. As our numbers increase and we crowd the planet, uh, wildlife is really suffering in many places. Uh, some, of the, some of the challenges for birds can be summarized, I think, by looking at those species that uh, migrate long distances versus those that don't migrate very far. For example, uh, the little warblers and vireos, flycatchers that we have nesting in uh, North America and in Canada that fly deep into the tropics. Those species, in general, are, are suffering, some more than others. Another general thing is that they fly down their flyways along the Atlantic coast and Mississippi and mountains and west coast. Uh, they have to get through many obstacles that humans are setting in their pathways. So migrations of birds are becoming increasingly challenging. There are some habitats, especially, in, that are in trouble as well. Meadows and prairies and mm-hmm. grasslands in general are shrinking and changing into agriculture and and uh, shrublands are actually growing up much into forests, especially in the eastern United States. And species that require meadows and shrublands are, are suffering. But you know, there's, there's one group of birds that is suffering more than any other, and that's the ocean birds. And that's why our work with the Atlantic puffins, I believe, is so important. Well, so that leads me into what are puffins and how do they fit into the scheme of things? Well, puffins are a small little seabirds. When I say small, I, I have to emphasize that because those people that do know about puffins better liken them to penguins, which are uh, really not related to puffins at all. But they look sort of like little penguins. They're only 10 inches tall. They walk on their feet. They stand upright. And they live in the cold waters of, of the uh, northern oceans of the world. Um, but what happened to the puffins in their natural habitat off the coast of Maine, I understand that they were extinct there? Well, puffins used to nest as far south along the United States coast uh, in the Atlantic to uh, mid-coast Maine. 
and they were sought out by the early settlers of the coast as a ready food supply. Puffins are, are good to eat, especially for those that have eaten uh, dried codfish all winter long. Pretty good thing to eat come spring. And so people would uh, shoot the birds, which were pretty tame, and they would take their eggs and even, even their chicks. So oh. we, we've lost lots of, um, of puffin colonies along the Atlantic coast, and by the year 1901, there was only one pair of puffins left nesting on a, on a main island. Is that right? Just one pair? Well, what, what got you interested in helping them? Well, I had traveled through Canada, some of the puffin colonies in Canada, and I had seen the nesting colonies there, uh, and I had visited them and really enjoyed that. And when I came to Maine, I realized after reading in some of the history books, the, the bird history books, that puffins used to nest down as far south as the mid-coast region of Maine. In those areas, uh, they were gone. But the habitat still seemed to be good, and so I set about trying to invent ways to bring them back to their former nesting islands. So you thought it was important to bring them back, even though they, there are other types of puffins around the world? Well, I felt that humans had depleted their populations along the main coast, so it was up to other humans to help bring them back, even though there are still millions of puffins nesting elsewhere in the North Atlantic, in mm. Iceland. Especially. Right. So their range was depleted and people were at the cause. Therefore, I thought people should be at the solution. Right. So when you started this process, I believe you said 1973, what did you do? What, what was the process of bringing them back? The steps we followed were to, to learn as much as we could about the life cycle of the puffin travel to Newfoundland where there were large colonies of puffins still and with all the necessary permits in hand we began collecting uh, nestling puffins from burrows on one of the large colonies in Newfoundland and we brought those back to the main coast and specially designed carrying cases mm -hmm. and we hand reared the chicks and let them grow up and mature and head off to sea. Their natural behavior is for the chicks to leave without the parents. The parents' job is essentially done after the chick is six weeks old. The chicks head off to sea with all the instincts they need to survive at sea. So we oh. were essentially taking the place of the uh, parent puffins for the last month of their uh, development. So the birds generally adapted, right? Once we brought them to Maine, we had to be the surrogate parents, ah. which meant our team living on the island with the birds had to hand feed the little nestling puffins. We call them pufflings. That's what a little puffin is. <laughs> and it's still a fuzzy little chick. Uh, at that age, they live by themselves, and they're, but they're very uh, precocial, like little chickens. They live underground in earthen burrows. Oh. And then uh, we, we were the parents, uh, so we had, to, we had to provide food, and we supplemented the frozen food with the necessary vitamins. And we took good care of those little chicks, and we wanted each one to grow up and thrive and head off to sea. And then there was a waiting game. We had to wait for at least four years before any of them even started to show up. Remember, nobody, nobody had tried this before, so uh, we had no way of knowing whether it was really going to work or not. And mm -hmm. looking back, happy that we had the patience 
and persistence that we had. Otherwise, we wouldn't be celebrating this program uh, these days. Um, so, so are they now eating naturally? I mean, what do they eat now? The puffins, uh, they spent their first four years at sea, and then they started coming back. We didn't have our first nesting until they were eight years old, and then oh. the first puffins returned from the Newfoundland chicks, and they nested for the first time, and they reared their own young, and now they're feeding their own young a little herring, a little hake, uh-huh. and a of other uh, marine fish. Mm-hmm. So what's the health of the flock now, and how many How many are there? Well, it took a long time to, to get the colony to start increasing, but last summer we counted 123 nesting pairs. Wow. And almost all of those pairs produced chicks. So. We're pretty excited by these numbers because it's certainly more than we ever brought to the island uh, in any one year ourselves. Sure, sure. And how, how long do they live? Well, that's another thing where was not known before the project started, but we were discovering some of them can live to quite um, respectable ages. We have two birds that are 34 years old. Wow, 34 years. So since the beginning almost, well, after the first four years. Well, those oldest birds uh, were collected in Newfoundland in 1977. Uh-huh. Uh, they are named Y33 and Y54, and they are among <laughs> uh, what we call our adopted puffins. One of our fun things we do is we have an adopt a puffin program mm-hmm. in which that interested uh, people, uh, school classes and People often do this as birthday and holiday gifts. And, you know, oh, that's cool. Uh, they participate in our Adopt-A-Puffin program. And so we provide them biographies and photographs of, of their particular Oh, that's really great. And so, but do they have predators now? Predators today are still out there, and, um, and that's an ongoing concern. Uh, there are herring galls and great blackback galls that mm-hmm. will eat them. And now there's a lot of bald eagles nesting in Maine, mm-hmm. and they eat them, mm-hmm. and so peregrine falcons. Uh, so they do have predators. However, we have found that as long as we um, are what we call our seabird stewards, our young college-aged uh, uh, biology interns living on the islands, these predators generally stay away and let the birds nest. Uh, okay, so, so the humans actually are a good thing. Um, in a way, with your interns. Well, exactly. I mean, the interns today are are, are uh, helping the, the puffins survive. The colony certainly would not have grown up to 123 pairs without the watchful eyes of these young biologists that live on the islands. Um, the biologists uh, go out there in early May. They set up camps, usually in tents, on the islands, and they stay all for about three months living on the islands and looking after the birds and making sure that they don't get... Uh, disturbed by other humans as well. Uh, we have right now in Maine three islands where puffins nest and we have interns living on all of those and we have four additional islands where we have interns camped out during the summer to protect a rare and endangered seabird. So in total we every summer we hire about 18 uh, college-age interns to help this uh, these seabirds thrive and, and the, all of this is actually good news not just for the birds but for the young conservation biology students because they are learning practical skills about being seabird managers. Sure. And and what happens to the puffins in the winter, though, when there's no human protection? 
Well, about the middle of August, the puffins get restless. They've raised their chick, and they really have no reason to stay at the nesting mm -hmm. islands. Okay. And so they begin their migration back out to sea, and this begins a mysterious part of their life cycle. Hillary, it's surprising to many people that we don't really know where the puffins go in the winter. That so is surprising. For, for about nine months of the year, they, they vanish out onto the North Atlantic, and it's a wild place. The oceans rise 50 to 100 foot seas uh, out there, and yet these little 10-inch birds uh, thrive uh, in a winter home. They probably don't spend it on land anywhere. They, mm -hmm. they certainly spend it floating at sea, and... Uh, and they are very good at surviving. About 90% of the adults live from one year to the next. Do you tag all the puffins so you know if they've come back every summer? Yes, we put leg bands on the legs. And these are mm -hmm. special steel leg bands mm -hmm. that help us to, um, to recognize the bird. That's how we know that some of these individual birds are as old as they are. And that's how we put these uh, biographies together for our adopted puffins. We know, for example, that some puffins have, have the same mate year after year, and some uh, have kept that mate for over 20 years. And wow. Turning and raising their single chick together. They usually have a home in a rock crevice, and the pair will return to the same burrow year after year, and, and that's their home, just like we have homes. They have this little rocky crevice that they call their home. We call it a puffin burrow. What effects do humans have on puffins, or, or is there a global warming that has an effect? Now, the original causes for the puffins that disappeared in Maine have largely been solved, that is, mm -hmm. the, the excessive hunting for food and feathers, though I, might, I should add that in many parts of the world, seabirds are still hunted for food, um, not so much for feathers, but certainly for food, for the eggs and the chicks and adults. And, Mm -hmm. taken. So that problem still exists in places where people are hungry. Uh, but there's, in addition to that, there are many new problems. You can imagine the effects of oil spills. Oh, for yeah. Mm -hmm. See, heard a lot about this with the, the big spill in the Gulf of Mexico, but there are small spills happening around the world, just little, little spills that kill thousands uh, of birds at a time, and, and, uh, and those spills don't make the news. Uh, there's also entanglement in fishing nets and fishing gear, especially problematic for big birds like albatross. Right. And, and overfishing of food supplies is, is a big concern. But the greatest problem of all, as you alluded to, is climate change. Mm -hmm. Because if the seas warm up, then they, the fish that the, the birds need move further away to seek usually cooler water. Mm -hmm. and so seabirds require the, the cold water. And they um, often the food supplies move too far from the nesting islands. There are some places in Norway, for example, where puffins have not bred successfully for a decade because the food supply has just deteriorated. Oh no! As the Gulf Stream has warmed those waters uh, in that part of the world. So uh, these are huge changes, and um, and we have to we have to really be aware of the big picture as we. Uh, as we look at protecting individual nesting sites. Oh, I'm sure that that's going to be a continuing problem. Why did you and when did you establish the Project Puffin? What are your goals for that? Well, Project Puffin started in 1973 when we Three. moved six puffins. Uh, <laughs> and now, 38 years later, the, the project has grown in Maine to protecting uh, seabirds on seven islands and mm -hmm. most of rare species in Maine are 
protected on our uh, important uh, bird areas that we protect. Um, mm -hmm. National Audubon Society is committed to protecting these these spots, but the key thing that we're doing really is using this as a model for seabird managers around the world so they can learn methods for how they can help protect their seabirds in their countries as well. Uh, we just did a, a survey of projects around the world that have benefited from the methods developed in Maine, and we discovered that there are 42 species of seabirds, which is about a fifth of all the seabirds in the world, have, be have benefited from the methods developed in Maine, including many uh, endangered and, and very rare species. So mm -hmm. that, that's very encouraging. Fourteen countries have used uh, methods such as translocating seabird chicks or more often using what we call social attraction, which is a method we've developed in Maine that employs using decoys and sound recordings and mirrors to sort of initiate seabird colonies on new sites. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're, we're going to put some of that information up on our website. A couple of your favorite stories from uh, the Puffin relocation, at least one story that you really like. Well, moving puffins from Newfoundland to Maine, you know, it sounds easy, but, boy, there were a lot of little bumps along the way. For example, there was the time we were had all the puffins in the back of a car, <laughs> and, and then the pilot told us that there was an approaching storm and we couldn't leave. So we had to, normally we fly them back to Maine as fast as we could, but there we were with the puffins stuck in the back of the car and nowhere to go. So we did find a basement, and we had to keep them warm. We found a basement and in a, one of the Canadian Wildlife Service wardens' houses, and we put them down in the basement to keep them warm. But after we were down there, we realized that there were rats in the basement. Oh, no. And this was really scary because uh, he forgot to tell us that. So we had to stay up all night uh, guarding those cases because rats uh, can kill uh, puffins. Oh, no. They're bad, and they smell them, and they can just kill them. So that was very scary. But fortunately, we, we didn't see any rats down there. But we sure no. all night waiting. Uh, yeah. Another time, we had the puffins uh, in the back of a car, and, um, and somebody uh, lost the key to the car. And the puffins <laughs> were locked in the car. And it was scary because they could overheat, oh, but yeah. uh, we managed to get another key promptly, and, and that that uh, was resolved. But these little uh, problems, you know, they can get in the way of the whole success. You know, they they can. And do you have a story, like a heartwarming story of of the success, a real success that you've had recently? Well, every time a, a puffin shows up, of course, it's a real success. But I, I think that uh, one of the real heartwarming things that happens is, is the interaction between my interns and the puffin because they get to know these birds as individuals. They really get to care about them. Every now and then they have the revelation that as they look through their spotting scope and they're admiring this beautiful bird, they <laughs> my gosh, this bird is older than, the, than they are. They, they come, <laughs> you know, my students are 20-something-year-olds, and... And here's the puffins, 30-plus-year-olds, and looking just fine and raising and young. So uh, I think uh, as individual people get to know individual birds, it's a very heartwarming thing. And, and in nature, that doesn't often happen because the birds all look pretty much alike to our eyes. But when you're studying birds for long-term periods like this, and you know where they nest, and they do have the individual leg bands on them, you can develop these uh, 
relationships with individual birds. Sure. Right. And, and, you know, I was reading that they're normally pretty quiet birds, but occasionally they make some sounds. Is that true? They do. They make remarkable sounds. Some people liken the calls of a puffin to a, a chainsaw. Would you like me to, to, uh, to imitate the call for you? You know, I would. I mean, especially after this long a time, I bet you you have that call memorized. So let's oh, yeah. hear it. I've heard it for decades out there, and it's a great sound. <laughs> well, here we go. Okay. This, this is the call of an adult puffin. Okay. <laughs> so that's it. That's good. That's, that's what puffin sounds like. And, you know, here's the context generally. Uh, that call is usually given from underground, and uh, when a puffin is coming back, to the burrow, the bird underground often calls to the bird outside to welcome at home, and the bird coming into the burrow recognizes that voice, oh. and that's on in the burrow call. Do they have other calls as well? Well, the young ones have some calls as well. A young puffin, when it's hungry, it sounds like this. Oh, that's funny. That's great. Do they have calls when they're uh, nervous or worried? Yeah, when the puffin, is, the, when the chick is worried, uh, it, but not really hungry, it'll just sound. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. So these, these are not what you call songbirds, but they are birds with with personality and with a voice. Yeah, they, are, do, do, are there different sounds um, between the male and female? Not that I can distinguish, but each individual puffin has its own voice, and they do recognize each other by their sound. And when's the best time to see the puffins off of the coast of Maine? The best time to see puffins off the coast of Maine would be any time from about the third week of June through the middle of August. Uh, the, although the puffins come back during the first week of April... Uh, they're usually incubating eggs and not that visible uh, unless they're coming and going from their burrows. And the boat tours are not running at that season so much. But by the third week of June, uh, boat operators uh, are making tours out. And there are boats that go out there from Booth Bay Harbor and New Harbor uh, especially. And there's, there's some other tours that go out as well. But those, those are ones that uh, go almost every day. Mm-hmm. You alluded to this earlier, but how can our listeners contact you and the Puffin Project? Um, and how can they see more, like your live cams and, and more information? Well, the best way to learn more about Project Puffin is to visit our website, which is www.projectpuffin.org. Okay. And if you click on that. Uh, that takes you to our homepage, and you see many features. During the summer nesting season, one of our most popular things is the live puffin cam, where we have a camera on an island streaming video back to the mainland, and that camera um, generally runs from late May through uh, mid-August, and you mm-hmm. can see puffins out there. And we have movies about puffins. Uh, some beautiful uh, footage has been made, and you can see it on the website as well as some more about the calls of puffins, and, and, and uh, commonly asked questions about puffins. Okay. And there's a whole link to the most common asked questions, like the fact that puffins can dive over 200 feet deep. They can fly like 55 miles per hour. 
Wow. So, and, and the most number of fish that a puffin has ever held in its beak at any one time. Hillary, can you guess what that would be? Uh, five. No, 62. 62? That's oh. right, 62. Now, they were not big fish, tiny little, tiny little fish. Yeah, well, they have quite, quite the beaks, though, the puffins. They're very colorful. The Atlantic puffin, yes, has the most colorful beaks. I should mention that there are uh, three other types of puffins in the Pacific Ocean. They don't get into the Atlantic, but there's the, the horn puffin, which looks most like the Atlantic puffin, though it's a little larger. The tufted puffin, which is uh, the biggest of the puffins, with a mm -hmm. black body and, and some golden uh, feathers that makes a crest off the top of its head. And the rhinoceros auklet, uh, a dark uh, nocturnal uh, puffin with a bump on his nose that gave, named, gives him the name rhinoceros. <laughs> There's the four species of puffins, and in the Atlantic, we just have the little Atlantic puffin, the smallest of the puffins. That's incredible. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on our show, and um, we will definitely link to some of your um, information on puffins, and I definitely appreciate your taking time out to talk with us. Hillary, it's been a, it's been a pleasure, and I hope you'll come to Maine to see puffins. I might add that... Um, not only can you learn about puffins, but if you want to learn about all kinds of seabirds, people should visit us and take one of our sessions on at the Hog Island Audubon Camp, and they can learn about that as well on projectpuffin.org. Okay. I, I think I'm going next summer then. Great. Um, look forward to seeing you there. <laughs> I will. So that's, that's it for this week from Animal Cafe. And you can join us on our website at animalcafe.co to learn more about puffins. Um, you can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes and connect to us on Facebook to continue this conversation. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another exciting interview.